Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. So good to be with you this morning. If we haven't gotten the chance to meet yet, my name's Aaron, and I have the joy of being part of the team here at Wellspring. So good to be with you this morning. And like, uh, as we're going to continue on this morning, if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be continuing on in our series through Paul's letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where we're going to be started. And as you're turning there, I wanted to tell just a quick little story about something that happened recently in our home. The other day, I was sitting there working at home, and Kaysen comes running up behind me. And all kind of like out of nowhere, runs up, and he yells to me, Dada, Dada, it came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. It, it was, it's a pumpkin. It's a pumpkin. It came out of nowhere. And his three and a half little brain was just so excited and so happy. And he will tell you that he's three and a half, not three, by the way. And what Kaysen was talking about was that Kaysen was coloring one of those little kind of coated coloring sheets that, you know, where the number one is like you color all the sections that are one brown and all the uh, areas that are number two, you call, color them green. And where they're three, you color them orange. And he was coloring these as he's learning his numbers. And he was shocked and surprised that as he was coloring the little sections, that out came a pumpkin. He was shocked and surprised and it delighted his little three and a half year old brain and just filled him with wonder and joy. Now, you might be wondering, what in the world does that have to do with anything related to the scriptures, in particular, 1 Corinthians 15? Now, the reason I tell that story is because as we come to 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to be talking about the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I think if we're honest, many of us think of the resurrection as like, oh yeah, I've heard that before. That's what we talk about at Easter, we, we talk about that once a year, Jesus died and rose again. And if we're not careful, we can kind of get lulled into this sort of kind of apathy of like, oh yeah, the resurrection, that's kind of like basic 101 Christianity. And we fail to be surprised and delighted and full of wonder, just like how Kaysen kind of was over his little pumpkin drawing. I think there's an element to the resurrection where we're invited to be full of wonder and surprise and in awe of what the reality of the resurrection means. A few years ago, one of the first kind of theology Bible books that I ever read was N.T. Wright's Surprised by Hope. Now as I was reading that, which kind of became my gateway into all things Bible and theology, N.T. Wright, the way that he unpacked the meaning of the resurrection and what it all meant for our everyday lives and for us as followers of Jesus, really kind of set me on this trajectory of just really wanting to follow Jesus even more. And as we come and talk about the resurrection this morning, my hope and prayer is that we see this not as the resurrection being something we trot out once a year at Easter and kind of, you know, kind of go over, you know, once a year, but a reality and a truth that impacts our everyday lives and fills us with wonder and joy. And so with that said, I want to dive into 1 Corinthians 15. I kind of broke up this talk into three main parts. And you'll see the three parts kind of across the screen as we go along this morning. But the first one that I want to talk about and discuss is, number one, the resurrection provides a reminder in an age of remix. A reminder in an age of remix. So why don't we start with verse 1 of chapter 15. Paul writes this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, 
he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now pause right there. There's a few things that we're really going to focus in on right here. The first one is just notice that Paul says, I want to remind you, brothers. So whatever Paul is going to be discussing right now, it's not something new. It's not something creative, if you will. It is a reminder. Now, we're going to come back to that in a second, but hold that thought. Everything that Paul is about to talk about is a reminder. Now, what is Paul reminding them of, right? Paul is reminding them of, quote, the gospel. Now, that's another big kind of churchy word that we might be over familiar with. What does the gospel even mean? Well, very simply... The word gospel is the same word that is translated as good news. The gospel is good news. Good news about what? Well, kind of on its most basic, most kind of minimalistic kind of definition, the gospel is the good news that Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. If you were to kind of summarize the gospel in a minimalistic fashion in three words, you could summarize it as Jesus is king. But I think we also have to expand that a bit and fill that in a little bit more. See, on if one hand, if the gospel in three words is Jesus is king, then kind of the, the most detailed, most kind of footnote-ish gospel would be, I think, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I think Matthew is writing and, and proclaiming and teaching the gospel when he writes his biography about Jesus. The life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the story of Jesus, the good news about Jesus. And in particular, though, when we look at 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is kind of giving his kind of summary statement, if you will, of the gospel. And Paul says that this good news is, is the royal announcement that Jesus is the one true king of the world. That word Christ in there in, in our passage this morning, Christ is another word for king. Paul is saying that Christ, the king, died for our sins, all the ways that we go against God's will and design. Christ died for our sins, and Paul says, quote, in accordance with the scriptures. Now, when Paul says that Christ died for our sins in, a, quote, in accordance with the scriptures, Paul's not just talking about kind of a few promises and prophecies that point to Jesus, like, you know, for unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, or you shall call his name Emmanuel. No, no, when Paul is saying that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He's talking about the whole library of the Old Testament, the, the scriptures of Paul's day. And he's saying that Christ died in accordance with our sins, in accordance with that story. That story where God has created a good world, but humanity has gone their own way. But God has desired to partner with humanity to make all things new. And it's in accordance with that story, the story of God redeeming the whole earth, the whole cosmos, that Paul says Christ died for our sins in accordance with that story. That he was dead and he was buried and now he is raised to new life. That new creation is a reality that will come to pass. This is what Paul is saying. Now this is extremely important to get. Because the gospel is not primarily, you know, a prayer that you pray or about avoiding the bad place or even about going to heaven when you die. Those, those might be some implications of the gospel. Fundamentally, Paul is saying the gospel is good news. And by good news, it's simply that. It is news. It is an announcement. And I think we get this, right? It's an announcement that Jesus is the true king of the world. It is an announcement that Jesus is the true Lord of the world. And this king, this Lord, has died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That God is making all things new, reuniting heaven and earth. And because of Jesus, those who place their faith and trust in him are invited into this story. Are invited into this 
reality. That's why N.T. Wright defines the gospel like this. The gospel is the royal announcement of the arrival of God's kingdom, that the crucified and risen Jesus who died for our sins and rose again according to the scriptures has been enthroned as the one true Lord of the world and is reuniting heaven and earth. When this gospel is preached, God calls people to salvation out of sheer grace, leading them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as risen Lord. Now, as Paul goes on in our passage this morning, notice what Paul says next. I want to remind you of the gospel that he, quote, preached to them. Now, this little bit here is a little bit geeky, but I think there's some payoff here. Hang with me. When Paul says in that, in that line there that the gospel that I preached to you, that word preached is actually just the verb form of the noun gospel that he just said. So literally, what Paul is saying is that I gospeled the gospel to you. I gospeled the gospel to you. Meaning this, that the gospel is not just something that Paul has as like ideas in his head. They are that for sure. And the gospel is not just something that he proclaims with his words. He does that for sure as well. But fundamentally, the gospel is something that he gospeled. He gospelized the gospel in his whole life. That he enacted the gospel. That he participated in the gospel. That he was fundamentally a person of good news. And this is what Paul is saying here, that to be a gospel people, to be a good news people, is not that it's just ideas in your head. As good as they might be, Paul is saying that the gospel is something that we gospelize ourselves with our everyday lives. Kevin Van Hooser, a brilliant Bible scholar, puts it like this. The purpose of gospelizing is to ensure that, this, that those who bear Christ's name walk in Christ's way. The point being is that it matters how we live our lives. It matters how we act as good news people. Now, notice all of this. Again, what Paul is saying about the gospel and gospelizing the gospel, this is all a reminder. It's not something new. It is a reminder that has been received to, to Paul, and now Paul is receiving and giving that off to the church in Corinth. And this gospel, another key point here, is of, quote, first importance, First importance, and we, this, we really have to get this as well. Think about all the things that Paul has talked about up until this point here in 1 Corinthians. Paul has talked about some crucially important things. He's talked about kind of celebrity culture within the church. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. Paul has talked about sexuality and marriage and idolatry and men and women's roles within the church and spiritual gifts and communion. So many different, really important things. But as we come to chapter 15, Paul wants to, to kind of let everyone know in the church in Corinth that this gospel is of first importance primary importance, that no matter our differences, no matter our opinions on all these other really important things, what holds the church in Corinth together 2,000 years ago, and what holds the church together here in the present right now 2,000 years later is the gospel of first importance. That what unifies the church is not our differences and disagreements on a whole host of very important cultural, political, theological things, but what unites us together is the gospel of of Jesus Christ. And in a, in a moment like ours, that is so polarized and divided, the church is called to be the church. We're called to be different. We're called to be set apart. 
And we're called to come together despite our disagreements, despite our opinions, on a whole array of different, again, very important things. What is of first importance for the follower of Jesus? And think about that. There's the temptation to make other things of first importance. There's the temptation to make our opinions on this or that of first importance. And again, I'm not denying that they are in fact important. But as followers of Jesus, what is of first importance? Paul would submit to you and to I, and God would submit to you and I, that the gospel of Jesus is of first importance. And this, again, is a reminder. It's not something new. This is a reminder that Paul wants to remind them again and again and again. And as followers of Jesus today, we should be reminded again and again and again of this gospel of first importance. But this kind of gets into this idea of a reminder, but in an age of remix. What do I mean by remix? By remix, I mean we live in this cultural moment. And this was happening in Corinth today. Where we might on one hand say, yes, I identify as a follower of Jesus. But then we begin to remix our faith according to our own personal preferences and agenda. We pick and choose the parts of Jesus that we like. We pick and choose the parts of Jesus that suit our own desires and needs. And this is what people have started to be calling the remix culture. Tara Isabel Burton, who is a brilliant author, came out with this recent book called Strange Rights. And she writes this about the remixed culture. She writes, the remixed hunger for the same things human beings have always longed for. A sense of meaning in the world and personal purpose within that meaning. A community to share that experience with rituals and to bring power of that experience into everyday life. But here's the key point. But they are doing it differently. Today's remix do not want to receive doctrine. They want to choose their own spiritual path that feels more authentic, more meaningful to them. They want the freedom to mix and match, to create their own daily rituals and practices and belief systems. And this is the moment we're living in, where life and religion and spirituality is just akin to a buffet. Pick and choose what feels good for you. You know, we want to curate our own lives and stories to fit our own tastes and preferences. And we we love this idea of new. And this was happening in Corinth, where they were, yes, saying on one hand, I identify as a follower of Jesus. But then, on the other hand, doing all these sort of devious practices that Paul has already had to address in the letter previously. What this comes down to is it's basically DIY spirituality and religion. Do it yourself. Pick and choose what feels good. A little of this here, a little of that there, a little bit from this kind of social media person, a little bit from this guru over here, a little bit of civil religion mixed in, and pesto. It's faith according to me. We love curating our own sort of lives to just kind of make us feel good and make us just kind of feel like, yeah, this feels right for me. But Tim Keller writes and talks about, in light of this sort of remixed reality, Tim Keller says, if the God you worship always agrees with you, then perhaps you've created God in your own image. And this is a warning that we have to heed. Because here's the thing. If the gospel is true, if Jesus is back from the dead and he is king and kings and lord of lords, then we do not get to pick and choose. We do not get to remix our faith according to our own personal preferences. 
See, we need this anchored reminder, something that is more sure, more in line with the truth of reality, something that has been passed down to us. Again, in our culture, anything that smells of tradition or being passed down, we push back against. We, we, we go against that because we want to create something new that fits our own mold. But again, this gospel of first importance is a reminder that Jesus is king. And that if Jesus is king and that he is back from the dead, we do not get to make this stuff up on our own. And that we as a people need this anchoring reminder to ground us in a moment like never before. Which leads me to my second point. If the first one was, quote, a reminder in an age of remix, the second one, number two, is hope in an age of hustle. See, the resurrection offers us hope in this kind of cultural moment of hustle where we're being told day in and day out, do more. Be more, post more, curate more experiences. Just kind of go along with, with the cultural idolatry of just being more and doing more again and again. And how is our society doing? How are we doing? Not just our society, but we included as followers of Jesus. In a cultural moment that's telling us to do more, hustle more, get after it more. I believe the resurrection offers us this grounding hope that is sure and steadfast. Paul writes in verse 12, and by the way, verse 12 is like the, the problem that Paul is specifically addressing where the Corinthians are denying the resurrection. They're questioning the resurrection. Verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, pay attention to what Paul says, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, fallen asleep is kind of the way the New Testament authors talk about death. Then those who have fallen asleep or those who have died in Christ have perished. They're gone. It's, it's over. Verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, Paul says we are a people to be most pitied. Again, verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are a people to be most pitied. See, if the resurrection is not real, then Christ is a, quote, lunatic or a liar, to quote C.S. Lewis. And we as his followers have no hope and we are a people to be most pitied. And if the resurrection did not happen, if Jesus is still in the grave and that there is no hope for us beyond this life, then it makes all the sense in the world to hustle and to cram as much meaning and passion into this life as you possibly can. If this life is all that there is, then it makes all the sense in the world to cram an eternity's worth of justice, an eternity's worth of passion, an eternity's worth of activism into these short few decades on this floating space rock because that's all there is. But if Jesus is back from the dead and death is, and all his friends have been defeated, and what happened to Jesus will happen to all followers of Jesus one day. Death, followed by burial, followed by our own resurrection into new creation. Then we live with hope. 
Hope that doesn't ignore the pain and the suffering of this world, but hope that says, despite the pain and suffering of this world, this is not all that there is. There is more. John Mark Comer, a pastor up in Portland who I respect a ton, defines hope like this. Hope is the expectation of coming good, even in the midst of difficulty, based on the person and promises of Jesus. Hope is the expectation of coming good despite difficulty based on the person and promises of Jesus. Hope rooted in reality. Hope rooted in something that has happened in the past, Jesus' death and resurrection, and hope in something that one day will happen in the future, Jesus' return and our resurrection. That's why Paul says, verse 20, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits. Now, when Paul says first fruits, he's using kind of a common agricultural metaphor, talking about how the first fruits would be like the first crops to be harvested at the end of the season. And Paul likens Christ, Christ's resurrection, to the first fruits of a, of a much larger harvest. And what Paul is about to go on to explain is that Jesus' resurrection is actually the first of many resurrections that is to come. Paul, again, continues on. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, again, the first of many, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. What Paul is saying here is very simply this. What happened to Jesus will happen to all followers of Jesus. Death followed by burial, followed by resurrection. And this is what our hope is grounded in, that this life is not all that there is, that Christ's love is stronger than the grave. Christ's love is stronger than death. And in a cultural moment that is filled with digital algorithms and digital uh, echo chambers that reduce our humanity to just eyeballs looking at a screen, the resurrection is a stark reminder that our physical existence, our whole embodied existence matters. That the Bible does not teach that the physical is somehow less than the spiritual. That God is remaking and renewing all of physical creation. That's why Paul says in Romans 8 that all of creation is longing and groaning for redemption. That's why Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 15... That the resurrection of our physical bodies is part of the hope that we have in Jesus' return. The resurrection says that the physical is good. And that we as human beings, our integrated human beings, our mental, emotional, spiritual, physical selves are all meant to be integrated together. This is how God designed us. Every part of you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, to quote the psalmist, in the image of God. See, sometimes we have this tendency to think, you know what? The body, the physical, that's somehow less important. That's not ultimate. And that we sometimes think that our true selves is like our immaterial self. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what Paul is saying here. The thing is, you don't have a body, you are a body. That's why Paul, again, continues on, verse 25. Paul writes this, For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And I love verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
When all things are subjected to him, the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. See, Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to look forward, to have their gaze not just in the present cultural moment, but to recognize that there's coming a day when death and all his friends will be fully and finally defeated. I love what my three-and-a-half-year-old son, Kaysen, came up to me the other day and said, you know what, Dada, at resurrection time, there's going to be no more virus. And I went, amen, Kaysen, at resurrection time, but hopefully sooner there's going to be no more virus. But this is the point, right? That, that the Christ's love and Christ's power is stronger than death and disease and decay to the point where Revelation 21 says that death will be no more. There will be no more suffering, pain, tears, the Bible says, Revelation 21. The old things have passed away, and behold, God says, I am making all things new. And on top of that, Paul writes at the end there of verse 28 that God will be all in all. That God's presence, yes, is with us right here, right now, wherever you're at. But there's coming a day where God's presence will be all in all, permeating every fiber of the universe to a degree that we can hardly even really imagine right now. That the glory of the Lord will cover the whole earth as the waters cover the sea, as the Old Testament prophet says. And this truth gives us hope. Now what I'm not saying, and what the Bible is not saying, is to just have your head kind of like stuck up in the clouds, only think about the future, and just ignore everything that's happening on earth. You know, there's that kind of semi-famous saying that says you're too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. That's not at all what the Bible is saying. That's not at all what Paul and the writers of the New Testament are saying. What Paul and the writers of the New Testament are saying is that when one has a proper vision and a proper orientation on the fact that this life is not all that there is, you then begin to see clearly in light of everything else in the present. You begin to have kind of goggles or glasses, if you will, to begin to see reality in the present as it truly is. You begin to see that things happening in this world are not ultimate, though they may in fact be important. That what is ultimate and what is of first importance is the gospel of Jesus and that Jesus is back from the dead. Which leads me to my third and final point, number three. If number two was hope in an age of hustle, number three is purpose in an age of pleasure. Paul writes in verse 33, if the dead are not raised, right, if the resurrection is false, it didn't happen, Jesus is still in the grave, if there's no hope beyond this life, Paul says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You know, Paul more than likely is quoting a, a saying from his own culture back in the day when he writes that. Let us eat, drink, tomorrow we die. Paul goes on, though, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up, Paul says, from your drunken stupor, as it is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. See, notice what Paul says. If the resurrection is not real, we might as well, quote, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Seek all the self-pleasure you can. Make the most of your desires that you can right here, right now. Because we're just animals with time and chance on our side. We're just products of a glorious accident. So you might as well live it up right now. And the Corinthians were tempted to think this. As they were, again, going back to verse 12, denying the resurrection. The logical conclusion then is to just, quote, eat, drink, fulfill your desires. Because tomorrow, you know what? We're going back to the dirt from whence we came. 
You know what? For honest, we're tempted to think this same thing. Maybe we don't explicitly deny the resurrection. Maybe we don't explicitly just go, yeah, that's not true or whatever as followers of Jesus. But I think we have what one writer calls resurrection amnesia. Where we forget that we live in a universe where a Jewish carpenter 2,000 years ago died and is now back from the dead. And that's the center of the whole thing. We live in a universe where the dead do not stay dead by the power and love of God. And so in light of that, we want to live in this world, though, that is constantly saying whatever is pleasurable, whatever feels good, whether it's food or alcohol or sex or money or Instagram followers or status, whatever you fill in the blank, that's what's most important. That's what's ultimate, the pleasure that we all seek. You know, and we receive this cultural messaging on a daily basis. It's all over the place. Recently, my wife and I, we watched the, the kind of newish, I think it's semi-new, the new movie, Enola. Right? The, the story of Sherlock Holmes' younger sister, Enola Holmes. And it's, it was a fun, you know, entertaining movie, and we really enjoyed it. And the main character, Enola, was played by the girl from Stranger Things 11. So it was just a really fun movie. But I noticed something at the very end of this movie that really caught me off guard. As the, the last scene, Enola is kind of biking off into kind of the, the, the setting or whatever. And she has this line where she said, this is the main character, my life is my own and the future is up to us. My life is my own and the future is up to us. And I think that really just captures sort of the ethos of our cultural moment. Live it up now. My life is my own. So seek all the self-pleasure you can muster up. And again, just to be perfectly clear, I'm not necessarily down on pleasure. I believe God created pleasure. I'm not even necessarily down on this movie. But I'm just pointing out the reality that as human beings, we are tempted in more ways than we care to admit oftentimes. That we just love the self-gratifying pleasure more than we care to admit. But I noticed also something, that line, my life is my own. And I don't know if this was intentional or not. But it's directly the opposite of what Paul just said a few chapters ago in 1 Corinthians. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 said, your life is not your own. 1 Corinthians 6.19, your life is not your own, so glorify God with your body. See, we need a greater purpose in this life than just fulfilling and sustaining our own self-desires. See, all of us, we're not just animals with time and chance on our side. We're not just products of a glorious accident. Every single one of you has been created in the image of the creator God with intentionality and purpose, fearfully and wonderfully made. Every part of you, your mind, your body, your soul, your every part of you, and that you have been invited to live into this grander purpose of being a part of God's kingdom and God's work here in this world. That's why Paul says in this passage, wake up. Do not be deceived. Wake up. Do not be deceived. We live in a universe where this world is not all that there is, where the dead do not stay dead, and this life is not all that there is. But wake up. Do not be deceived. Whether it was the gospel of Caesar's day, because there's a whole bunch of gospels out there on offer. Whether it was the gospel of Caesar's day that said, you know what, peace and prosperity is going to come through Rome and Rome's military, the Pax Romana. Or the so many other gospels on offer today. Paul says, wake up. Do not be deceived. Whether it's the gospel of consumer culture in our day, which tells us to accumulate more and enjoy more and then you'll be happy. 
or the gospel of enlightenment or education that says if you just accumulate enough knowledge, then you will fully arrive. Or the gospel of partisan politics, which is advocating for your trust and allegiance in a party or a platform. Or the gospel of freedom or individualism that says no matter what, just do whatever feels good as long as it doesn't hurt anyone, no matter how underdeveloped your prefrontal cortex is. Just make your own choices for yourself. See, our culture has many gospels on offer. But the good news of first importance, Jesus came. Jesus died in accordance with the scriptures. And God's purpose is to redeem and remake the whole cosmos, reuniting heaven and earth. The resurrection is real. Death has been defeated and eternity starts now. That's why Paul's going to end this glorious chapter in verse 58 where Paul says this, Therefore, in light of this whole reality of the resurrection, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. See, friends, you and I were created not just as a glorious accident, but we have been created with intentionality and purpose. And that our labor, what we do with our lives matters. That God is inviting each and every one of us to participate in his good news, in his story of making all things new. And so to conclude, maybe just a few quick kind of questions in light of what we've talked about to think about as we go about the rest of our week. You know, in a, in a culture that's addicted to new, that loves DIY and remix spirituality, the reality is that the resurrection reminds us of first importance, of something that we need to hear again and again and again, that Christ is king, he came, he died, he rose again, and is making all things new. And that we don't get to make this stuff up. We don't get to just define reality and spirituality for ourselves, that we need something from outside of us to lead and guide us. I need something from outside of myself to lead and guide us. So maybe the question is this, where are you tempted to create a DIY Christianity for yourself? Where are you created to, or where are you tempted to just kind of create and remix your faith that just suits your own agenda or preferences? I think one of the ways we do this is oftentimes with the teachings of Jesus. You know, we love the teachings of Jesus that are about love and acceptance and justice for the poor. But the moment Jesus starts talking about the sin in my own heart, hold on, I want to ignore that. Or maybe it's the case where, you know, when you're, you're about to have guests over at your house, and we do this as a family sometimes too where there's kind of this, this mode where we're going to clean the house really fast. And really what that means, we're just going to stuff everything in like one corner or one room and it's still a mess. But everything else looks great and amazing. And sometimes I think we do that with our faith. Where there's like an area of our kind of spiritual house, so to speak, that we would rather not let God have a part of. What room is that for you? Where you're just wanting to remix it according to your own preferences. Maybe it's the room of money or sexuality. Maybe it's the, the room of your past or your future that you're kind of at arm's length, not really allowing Jesus to enter in. But out of his love and his care and compassion, Jesus says, don't try to make this stuff up on your own. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest, Jesus says. 
And in a culture of hustle and hurry, the resurrection offers us hope beyond this life, yet informs and guides how we live in the present. That all of creation is being made new. That the physical matters. And that God's presence, yes, is with me now, but one day, again, will permeate the entire universe like never before. And on top of that, death and all his friends will be fully and finally defeated. But in light of this hope, again, there's always the temptation to just hustle and make it all happen for ourselves. And where is that for you? Where are you tempted to just go along with the cultural mantra of just hustle and do more, make it happen for yourself, placing your trust and allegiance in so many other things? And maybe it's not necessarily your schedule is over busy. I know for our family with COVID and all, all the things with the pandemic, our schedule in a lot of ways has actually slowed down. The calendar isn't as full. There's not as many play dates. There's not as many social events. There's not as many even really church events. And so the temptation isn't necessarily that I'm physically hustling, trying to make it happen for myself, but in my own mind, in my own thoughts, where my mind is racing over and over and over again, just trying to overanalyze, overthink, overworry, overstress, overanxious. And my mind is hustling, my mind is racing. But again, the, the, the New Testament, the scriptures remind us, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul says in Corinthians to take every thought captive to obedience to Jesus. Where is that for you? Where are you tempted to hustle and hurry instead of leaning into the hope that Jesus offers? And finally, in a world that seeks pleasure to the nth degree, as long as I quote, don't harm anyone, the resurrection gives us purpose beyond our hedonistic tendencies of today. That you and I were created with intentionality and purpose to live in God's good world, to represent and image God in this world that so desperately needs us. And I think the temptation, though, again, is that we're tempted to just fulfill our own desires, some of which would be good, and honestly, some of them are not fully aligned with Jesus. But remember what Jesus taught us, that in order to gain our lives, we need to lose our lives. If we want to find our life, we will gladly give it up, and that's exactly what Jesus has done for you and I. He has given his life for you and for me. And through the other end of that is resurrection. Through the other end of denying ourselves, not denying who God has made us, but denying those areas of our lives that go against the will and desire and the good intentions that God has for us. In the process of laying down our lives to our good King and Savior, resurrection comes through the other side. Life comes through the other side. And I can't help but wonder if the Spirit is inviting all of us to a greater self-denial of those areas in our lives that honestly go against the good intentions that God has for us. Where might that be for you? Where are you tempted to find pleasure in just your own idea of what life is to be all about? And where is the Spirit inviting you to lay that down and to experience resurrection and healing and life on the other side? As C.S. Lewis famously said, we're so often satisfied with making mud pies, mud pies in the slum when a holiday is offered to us by the sea. You know, and as we close, I want to just again remind us of what Paul is reminding us. The good news of first importance. That Christ came in accordance with the scriptures, was dead, was buried, and was raised in accordance with the scriptures. And may we be a people that live into this hope here and now in the present. And so as we just are here this morning, God, we ask, God, that 
in, in, in all the different ways where we want to just go our own way. In all the different ways where we want to seek pleasure and hustle and just do it and make it all about us and for ourselves. In all the ways that we want to just remake everything to fit our own desires. God, would you remind us of your healing love and forgiveness? Would you remind us that we live in a world that this is not all that there is, that you are making all things new. And that our lives matter right here, right now. So Jesus, we declare that you are good. We declare our, our trust in you, even in those moments where it's hard to believe. We believe, but help our areas of unbelief. God, we love you because you first loved us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.